Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 13 of Control the Coronables. It's an easy introduction. Seven-time Grand Slam winner, Wimbledon champion, former world number one, household name, Jamie Murray. Enjoy. Jamie Murray, welcome to the, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sorry about my mouthful. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all right. I know that at these times you've got to stay fueled. <laughs> during this time a little a little introduction i know that everybody knows knows the name jamie murray but it is what we do on this show so a few a few of his achievements he's our second multiple grand slam champion from scotland on the show he's not our first uh, gordon reed has already already made that claim um he had a singles career high of 834 Long time ago, Jamie, yeah. and he had a doubles career high of one, which is always nice to hear. Um, 23 ATP doubles titles, seven Grand Slam titles, a global star, and an absolute gentleman, Jamie Murray. Thanks so much for giving your time, Jamie, and it's it's great to chat to you. That's all right, pleasure. And and since I last spoke to you, we had a little bit of a chat on Instagram Live. You know, how, how, how are things gone since then? Um, I guess same stuff, really. I mean, we've, we've been, uh, I guess, probably since we last talked, probably another sort of three weeks in lockdown and um, no tennis or anything like that. Just been at home, working out a bit. Um, left the house for the first time yesterday, other than to go to the supermarket, just to do a bit of a run. Oh. Um most of the stuff I've been doing fitness-wise just kind of been at home, like a lot of sort of jumps, like explosive power, that sort of stuff, like trying to get better at that while I've got the time to really focus on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's been good, actually. I pretty much had a good structure to most of my days, so kind of like keeps you engaged and kind of have a have a focus, you know, which I think is important. No, it is. And I w- actually, I, w- I wonder if there does come a point for all of us where... You know, speaking to you, speaking to many people, everyone's been so positive about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if it does come a point where everyone just goes, no more. Yeah, well, for us, it might be on Sunday when uh, Boris Johnson makes his next announcement and yeah. tells the country that they've got to do another month in lockdown or something. That might be the moment when uh, there's riots on the street. And, and, and there's been like, what I'd, what I'd love to do today if you, is, is go on your tennis journey a little bit. Obviously, we, yeah. we, know, we know you as the superstar that you are and that all the titles you have, but it started somewhere, you know. So, yeah. you know, how, how did you get into tennis from the, from the very beginning? Um, so, yeah, I mean, so I got into tennis when I was four. Um, I mean, most of the time when I talk about like how how I got into tennis, I always say we, because me and Andy were just doing it at the same time, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we started in, uh, I was four, he was three, we were in, in Dunblane, my mum was the club coach at, at Dunblane, and we used to go over to uh, to the courts when she was when she was coaching, we didn't have like childminders or that, so we would kind of be there and running around the back of the court, kind of make a nuisance of ourselves, and at some point we obviously picked up rackets and and started hitting uh, hitting tennis balls, but I mean, you know, I'm sure at that point my parents never thought that, you know, we'd go on to achieve what we were able to achieve in tennis. Especially, I mean, being from Scotland with like no real history of Absolutely. tennis in our in our country or anything. Um, I mean, we were really lucky that we had um, the Stirling University had had recently got indoor courts. Yeah. Um, which was like a 10 minute driveway. So that was like a massive help for us because obviously in Scotland, it's, you know, it's raining all the time. So yeah. um, the opportunity to play indoors on, you know, a proper surface rather than artificial grass, which is like, 
all there is up in Scotland. That's right. kind of changed a bit now, but certainly in those days, um, kind of gave us a, a better chance to sort of develop our, our skills better. Yeah, because it is, you go, and, and a lot of people will be curious on this, and a lot of people will think you know, it, it is, the Murray story is an unbelievable story, you know, yeah. from, that, from like you say, a small, a small town in, in, in Scotland. What, what would you put it down to? Because when I, when I think of both you and Andy, and I, I go back a long way, I saw you boys coming up as juniors. There was two things that always hit me with both of you guys. One, one you had skill, you know, you know, had, had real kind of skill to, yeah. to your game. And two, you had a, a real mindset and, and confidence. There was, a, there, was, there was a belief, there was a feeling that, you know, you guys believed you were going to be top tennis players. So where did that come from? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I think the, the skill part of it, I think, you know, that's purely from our, our mom. I mean, she, you know, probably one of the best in the world at um, skill development, certainly in, in young kids, I think. And, you know, her philosophy for teaching was like, I give the kids as many skills as possible because that will allow them to be able to deal with more situations that will come up on the court. Yeah. And she also, I mean, in keeping with that, she taught, you know, to, like how to play the game as opposed to like hitting tennis balls, yeah. which is a huge difference. Um, and even now, you know, like, I mean, I've played some of the best players in the world and, you know, as, as a doubles partner and stuff, like, and sometimes you, you're communicating with these people and, and you've, you know that they don't read the game to the level that you're reading it or what yeah. things that they're picking up on and stuff or, or not picking up on that you think they, they should be. Um, and that, for me, it just goes back to how you, were, how you were taught to play the game when you were, when you were younger. And I think both me and Andy, like our, our sort of game understanding, if you like, is, is, yeah. is very high. Um, and you know like especially for me my game you know I didn't have like massive um, power and things like that that could kind of blow players away off the court but you know I was able to use my skills to kind of be crafty and, yeah. and whatever to, to, to good effect and to cause problems for my, for my opponents and you know I'm sure if I didn't have those skills or that sort of understanding of the game and like reading the game and what, how things are going in matches like I wouldn't have been nearly as successful as I am or I have been up to this point in my career. Yeah absolutely and, and in terms of what about in terms of the mindset because there's, there's a couple that, that stand by me there was one <clears throat> you know I was I was fortunate in some ways I played you boys at the very very start of your careers before you were quite the, the level of players that you are now I remember playing Andy a few times in doubles and I remember him shouting out, how the hell are we losing to these guys? <laughs> in, in, his, in his mind, he, he couldn't. Yeah, I, I would say that's quite possible, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like him a bit. But it's funny, I mean, we, I think like we, I think we're, we're very determined, I think, especially, especially Andy. Um, I think like, we, I mean, from a young age, like it was like it was harder for us to, because we were from Scotland, mm -hmm. to become tennis players. Certainly, compared to like, let, let's say English players, just because of like the the opportunities that were available to you. Certainly, in terms of like yeah. traveling to tournaments and things like that. I mean, even you, you were in the very north of of yeah. the country, like. You, you still have to travel far to, yeah. to compete. And, you know, we would have to, to travel down every Friday, Friday evening after school. We'd drive down somewhere to England from, you know, from, from Newcastle down to, I don't know how far we'd get down to maybe like Corby or something like that to play these weekend tournaments and, and, um, and then come drive all the way back, go to school next weekend, do it all again. Um, so I think there was like, and certainly probably our, our parents or certainly my mum kind of sort of instilled that, not just in us, but I think the other Scottish kids yeah. as well that were in our sort of age group and we travel with, like, 
you know, that we just kind of had that mentality, like, you know, it was us against... Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, let's say the world, for example, but certainly us against, you know, these players that we're going to compete against down in, down in England. Um, and I think we were kind of aware from a sort of young age, like, how much more commitment was required on our part but but also from our from our parents and stuff like yeah, yeah. you know the sacrifices they needed to make in order to kind of give us these opportunities yeah yeah you don't just fall in that situation you don't just fall into just doing it just because it's it's habit there has to be no, a, it, no. It has to be a conscious decision doesn't it to make yeah, such it's a easier, i mean it's, it's easier not to do it right yeah yeah I mean, it's, it's, it was a, it was a slog at times. I mean, we, I mean, we enjoyed it. I mean, most, like most of the time growing up at that age, up till about, well, for me, certainly up till about 13, 14 minutes sort of change, you know, I was, I was probably the best in the country, one of the best in, in Europe. And, you know, so you're used to winning, competing and winning. So, you know, that gives you a confidence in yourself. Yeah. I would I would never describe myself as as arrogant or cocky or anything like that, but I still knew that I was a good tennis player yeah. at that going through those age groups and that yeah. you know I was I was the best at what I was what I was doing in the in the country and I think that obviously I guess you probably don't lose that as such. Maybe your your level drops or other players overtake you and stuff, but you still have that believe because you have been the best that yeah. you know that you can or, yeah. or you still believe that you can be the best even if you're you know even if, you, if, if you're not let's let's say yeah we talk a lot actually with, with the sports psychologists we work with at the academy the difference between belief and confidence yeah and belief is quite a stable thing that that's yeah. in place but confidence comes and goes. So you can have yeah, yeah, yeah. months where you lose your confidence, but yeah. that belief's in there. It takes me to, to your mum, and, and obviously I, I've known your mum for years as well. Your mum is lovely. She's funny. She's got an amazing personality, but she's also strong. And she's yeah. obviously played a really you know, strong role with, with you boys as well. Yeah. In terms of, of, not necessarily direct about your mum, but in terms of parental balance, to any parents listening, what do you think the right balance is? Because you will get some parents that will just go strong, 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 and you'll get some that maybe don't push enough. You know, would any advice you'd have on that? I mean, it's it's difficult because ultimately, I mean, ultimately the parents have to be very dedicated yeah. or committed or willing to make the necessary sacrifices because, you know, tennis is, you know, it requires a lot of time, you know, travel, weekends, tournaments, all that sort of stuff, expenses when it comes to like training and equipment and everything. So, you know, financial and time sacrifices is, is huge. So, you know, of course, they, I guess the parents need to be willing to do that. Yeah. But then there's the flip side that, you know, if you get too overbearing and too, um, well, let's let's just say pushy or yeah. or putting too much pressure on the kids to, you know, to to perform or win this tournament or win that match or whatever, then that's also not necessarily a positive influence on the kid and not going to get the right sort of um, you know results and not necessarily in terms of winning and losing, but just the reactions that you want from your kid and and ultimately the kids are more likely to continue doing something or going down a path if they're enjoying that journey, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that's, I mean, it, it's obviously a very difficult balance. I've never been a parent myself and, you know, I've never had to invest a lot of money into my, into my kid yeah. um, in what he wants to do or maybe what, what I want my kid to do. So it's, yeah. it's not, um, I think it's a very difficult um sort of balance or situation that, that parents suddenly find themselves in. And I think from my, from my mom, um, her sort of mentality was always like, you know, you don't have to play if you don't want to just, you know, I want you to enjoy it. But, you know, at the same time, if you're there, then, you know, you're going to do what you need to do in order to get the, mo the most out of it. It's not like a half hour effort at it or anything like yeah. that. But she, I mean, she, like, 
for her development, you know, as a, as a coach and stuff, she had, she had difficult time of it because, you know, she was, you know, trying to do like that PCA and, and develop her, her, um, her, her coaching skills. And obviously, you know, she had two kids who were, who were really good, but she didn't know, you know, each step of the ladder, yeah. how they needed to progress, who, you know, what the, what the next steps were. So she, you know, she had to go out and, and learn all of that herself. You know, she didn't have yeah. the knowledge or anything. Um, so she just tried to kind of speak to the best people she possibly, possibly could or, or who she thought was the, was the right people and take bits of advice here and there and, and try to kind of, um, you know, create a path for us to, to develop our, our tennis on, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it wasn't easy for her. That's for sure. Well, absolutely. And then obviously you guys had some events in your life when you were younger as well with, with Dunblane, which, which what happened at the school, how, how, how did that impact you guys at the time? Maybe related or. I mean, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I, I don't feel like it did. Yeah. Or certainly consciously, I don't, I don't feel like it, like it did. Um, yeah, I, I don't really, I don't really have a answer for that. Obviously, it was a, was a, you know, a terrible tragedy that, that happened and affected the whole, the whole town and, and maybe, you know, and, and obviously more, you know, people that were, actually affect the families that were, were really affected by it was 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 shocking but um yeah for us i'm just hopefully kind of or glad that hopefully when people think of dumbling now that it's um thought of in more positive light than for for the for the tragedy but obviously that's not saying we should forget what forget what happened no it's not but it, it, i think it definitely there's so many things that, that yourself and Andy have done. You're both still in your careers. So I don't think we'll really know the impact that you guys have had for a few years. And that's right as well, because you, you have to continue focusing on your, on your own careers, you know, but I, I'm, I'm certain that the positive impact that you guys have had on so many people will be one of the big things that you're remembered for, you know, that that's for sure. So as, as, as you were growing up, so you obviously you guys, and, and we discussed this a little bit on the Instagram Live, you were basically the best players in the world for your age, which is, which is incredible. You know? So you kind of got very good very soon. Yeah. And how, how do you think it affected you when you, you mentioned earlier, it's hard for you sometimes to just talk about I, you talk about we. Yeah, yeah. So now all of a sudden, you're not a, as much of a we because Andy's, Andy's gone off to Spain. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, probably by the time that I was like 14, you know, I'd kind of gone through some bad experiences and, you know, wasn't enjoying my tennis, was quite affected, quite affected by that. And my level had certainly dropped, um, you know, and, he, and he'd obviously continued to kind of improve and stuff. And he, he decided that he wanted to go to, to Spain to to develop his tennis and that was the way for him to you know give himself the best shot to become a, a professional a professional tennis player and you know he you know we played like the team team events for the for Britain in the summer and you know we played against Spain and they had Rafa and um, Marcel Granler who went on to be a really a very very good player singles and, and doubles as well and a couple other boys who've, who've gone on and had had good careers as well um, and, you know, obviously the, all the kids messing around and talking stuff and he, you know, he's talking to Rafa and he's like, I'm hanging with Carlos Moya, who I don't know if he was exactly number one in the world at the time, but he obviously went on to be number one and won French Open and stuff like that. So, you know, Rafa was obviously training with him every day in Mallorca and, and he's like, well, you know, yeah. if I want to give myself my best chance, like I need to be hitting with, you know, that sort of level of player and put myself in that environment and obviously Scotland just couldn't uh, couldn't do that so you know he took the decision which was obviously a major decision for a 15 year old to take to go and leave his parents and move um, move to another country where you don't speak the language and yeah. stay with a well I guess they stayed stayed on on site and stuff but uh, you know obviously it worked out for him I mean, he had three three great years there 
his tennis like improved through the roof and you know by the time he sort of finished juniors like he was well on his way to being in the top 100. Absolutely and, and I think that's when I think of think of you and I think of your career which is incredible it really is incredible I actually think the most impressive thing and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is as as you were having a difficult time your younger brother was going on and, and achieving so much so so early I'm guessing there must have been times where you were doubting if tennis was for you and and I think and it would be very easy to get yourself in a dark place feeling a bit sorry for yourself <laughs> that tennis isn't for you so for you to then come through that and then find your niche as a doubles player and go on to to have the career that you've had it's incredibly impressive. Can you tell us about any of those moments that maybe you did have, some of those dark times you did have, some of those doubts? Well, I think probably, certainly when I was like 15, 16, 17, was kind of, well, I mean, there was probably quite a few of those moments, more because my sort of uh, experience in Cambridge was, was fairly... Um, Let's, well, let's say recent in my in my memory and had quite a strong impact on me. Um, but I think, like, I, I mean, I guess, you know, obviously, ultimately, I got to number one in the world and, you know, that's an achievement that not many players get to do when they start out their, out their tennis journey. But I guess, like, for me, there's been a lot of, a lot of ups and downs and I think probably quite a lot of people can, can relate to that and you know you have to you have to persevere because there's a lot of you know it's not always plain sailing and it's not always you know an upwards upward trajectory and I'm sure for you know most tennis players it's it's like that it's not you know very few guys who've just always kind of gone like like yeah. this uh, yeah. but I guess for me like I mean I don't really remember so much when I was younger but certainly when I was a professional and, and an adult and, and competing and I'd, and I'd got high up the doubles rankings pretty quickly to 30 and then kind of plateaued a bit and my my ranking then started to drop and I was outside 100 for a bit, which was which was poor really with the level that I could play at. Um, but yeah, like totally lost form and stuff. And, you know, like I wasn't sure whether I was going to keep keep playing at the end of the uh, or beginning of like 2013 because I didn't have a partner and I didn't have any direction to what I was trying to do I was just kind of floating around and um, it would be pretty easy for me to kind of stop I think at that stage yeah. um, but I think like I mean my, my wife was a big help with that and kind of pushing me to get more out of myself but I think always like deep down I don't know why, but I always felt like I could do great things on a tennis court and achieve great things. And I think if I was to stop then, I would have always had regrets about what might have been possible. Because, you know, I was, I was aware I had, well, certainly for doubles anyway, I had some, like, amazing skills that is very unique to other or compared to other players. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it would have been a shame not to kind of max out from those, with those skills. But that's the bit I find fascinating about you guys. And I touched on it earlier because I think as a British player, so, you know, me as a British player, when I got a British number one doubles and I won a match at Wimbledon, I'd kind of set those ceilings at that. My, that's my reflection now. And, 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 and almost like it was, it was almost like that was success. So I didn't quite know now what to do. And maybe I didn't have anyone directing me. But, you know, and, and I think that's something that typically British players have done over the years, you know, that they've set the ceilings at certain places. And just hearing even you talk about it, I was just 30 in the world, you know, I was just, I kind of got the 30, you know, and it's like, yeah. almost like you guys seem to have had a completely different way of 
an outlook that didn't seem to be feelings put in place which which fascinates me and I think it's amazing and I think you've then opened the doors for other British players as well to start yeah. thinking like that I think so I think in, I think in my experience like yeah there's there's a lot of I mean I don't like I don't know where it comes from that for me I, I never had an issue with believing let's say believing in myself or what what might be possible for me to achieve or, or or not being not being scared of what where I might be able to go to with my with my tennis and I think like for me ultimately what's fun in tennis is going out and competing in you know big tournaments and big stadiums against the best players in the world like that's what's that's what's yep. the fun part about the job, right? And that's what inspires me to play well or try to play well in those yeah, yeah. In, in those moments. Um, and the thing is, like, I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, you played all the satellites and the futures, and you know, it's 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 crap, isn't it? Really, I mean, playing yeah. at playing at Sunderland and you know, staying in a ten pound B and B, like, yeah, you know that. Is, I, and then you then you experience the, or you potentially are knocking on the door of being able to play at Wimbledon and yeah. Queens and it's like shit like this is what I want to do you know this yeah, is yeah. this is real tennis this is yeah. this is fun like and for me like I was never scared of of doing that yeah. Um, and yeah I guess I guess maybe that's why I mean I think you're I would say maybe in Britain maybe that's unfair I don't know but like British number one, that's always been quite a big thing in, in Britain. Yeah. And I think you're you're right in what you say that maybe people kind of get to there or you know, maybe there's a certain ranking that people think, okay, if I get to that I get respect from people within British tennis community or whatever. And that, and yeah. once you've got that it's like, okay, well, you know, I've achieved that, what's what's more for yeah. what's more for me to do? Uh is it, I mean, it's interesting, like for for you, because I actually, I think I actually watched you in Aki at Wimbledon win your match. I think was yeah. Was that against the Barkers? No, so we in first first round that year we beat uh, High Tech Lee, High Tech Lee, yeah, yeah. and High Tech Lee and Kevin Kim. We were two yeah. sets to love down, and we won in we won in five, and then and then actually we played the Brian second round. And we we were in a good position. We were actually set all. We were four three up in the third. Couple of break points for for five three. And at that time, I mean, I remember that was the first time we practiced doubles. We practiced doubles for ten days before, and it just wasn't what you did. You didn't practice yeah, doubles. Yeah, you played you, you played singles, and then you rocked up and played a bit of doubles. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I couldn't believe how sharp I was. Like I just like you know just the, the, because we'd just been doing so many double specific things. Yeah. Um, and then I actually, for different reasons, I, I stopped playing. I got a, obviously a decent paycheck then. Uh, we actually won a couple of challenges after that. And I was about 130 maybe, but it wasn't really deemed as much or anything at that time really. And, and, and I managed to pay a couple of credit cards off and it felt like the time to stop for me. Um, and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but I'm, I'm happy with how life went. But then Louis came to the UK. As I was going to say, you, after. you kind of were just a bit, I don't know how many years before him, but wouldn't have been many. Two months, two or three months. Yeah, yeah. They, they... I, I spoke to Chinky about this on, on a podcast last week about regret. And, and I wouldn't say that I have regret because I feel like I've taken ownership of that. You know, yeah. and it, like, you know, I was, you know, I, I maybe wasn't, you know, could have done things a little bit different and I'm, I'm happy with what I was doing. But yeah, there's definitely some daydreaming sometimes thinking if yeah. I'd still been around maybe when Louis had come, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that might have, well, well, it would have. There's no doubt. I mean, Louis, Louis is a genius, which we'll get. About that, like, I think that there's a lot of, there's quite a few players, British players, that if Louis had been around a bit earlier, let's say like two, three years earlier, perhaps, you know, there could have been a lot more doubles players come through than, I mean, even though there, there has been a lot over the last yeah. like five to eight years, you know, even like, like 
Chinky as well. Yeah, absolutely. He's been a good doubles player. I mean, you guys played a lot. Yeah. Even I mean, guys like Dave Sherwood. Like, if I mean, who who knows with Dave? Yeah, but, you know, he a lot of guys had skills yeah. to to go out and and be um and and be good doubles players if they potentially had, had been able to to get um access to Louis before. But obvious, but also the thing was like before he came, like doubles wasn't respected at all no. and, and not that wasn't that's not a, a british issue that that's still the yeah. case in many countries but you know the fact is now i mean obviously i was very lucky to get so much of his time incredibly lucky but also with the, the money that's been invested into the game you know doubles is such a viable way to make a career yeah. in tennis make a living in tennis and if all you guys had, had access to him and developed yeah. the skills that you know the understanding of doubles that I had. Yeah. You know, a lot of you guys, if if you wanted to, which you obviously did, maybe some of the other guys were more focused on singles, but they would have been able to play a lot longer than they did because guys like Chinky, I mean, he stopped when he was twenty four, maybe. Yeah, twenty five or twenty six, I think. Yeah, like, he, which was a shame, you know, because he could have he could have been a top player. I I think. I tell you what, Jamie. I, I wasn't. I've got to forty years old, and I've never regretted the whole double thing. Yeah. But you've, I'm leaving this chat now. I'm going to go and cry in my. I'm going to go and cry in my dinner tonight. Practice. <laughs> you get me. You know this. This could be. I could use quarantine. I'm get in touch with Louis. See if I can get my fat ass in shape, and yeah. Louis can teach. I actually do remember a little story here. Was um, and I don't know if you remember this, but I was at NTC. I was coaching Lloyd Glasspool when he was about 15 or 16. And I turned up to, on my own back, you know, self-employed coach, drove down myself, paid for my petrol, but didn't have a tennis racket with me. And I, and I turned up, young coach, notepad, Louis Kai, I've heard great things about Louis, he's running this under 16 camp. So I rock up and he goes, who are you? I said, oh, I'm, I'm Dan Keenan. He went, all right, where's your racket? I said, I don't have one. So he, so he gives me his racket and he says, off you go, go and feed some balls. So I'm, I'm, I'm there to see Lloyd and learn from Louis, but I'm feeding the under 16 girls on the first call of NTC. So anyway, this session happens. And then at lunchtime, I walk past and you're on court with Louis. And you like, you know, how you doing? How's things? And, have a chat. and I remember Louis saying, and it's just Louis's way. He said, what are you doing talking to him? And, uh, and you said, oh, it's Dan Keen. And, you know, he used to be British number one doubles player. And he actually said, right, on, on court. And I had no shorts. <laughs> and I came and I did like an hour's session with you. Yeah, I remember. I remember. <laughs> and I went tracksuit bottoms. And I was, it was so hot. I was like, yeah, I was. It was un unbelievable. But the, on the doubles point, because I, I do want to get back to singles, because I want to talk a little bit about singles. But on the doubles point, how viable. So let's say somebody coming through, obviously, you went to doubles quite early. We, we hear the figures in singles that it's what 150 in the world to cover expenses, blah, blah, blah. How viable is it on the double side and how high do you need to be on the double side in order to make a living? Well, I think you probably, I mean, I, again, it depends like what's making a living. I mean, if you, there's a lot of guys that are just, they're, they're beat on the challenger tour. They've been stuck on the challenger tour for, for ages, but they keep playing. So I guess they, you know, I mean, I mean, they're not having savings, I guess, but they're going from, yeah. they're able to go from tournament to tournament, you know, in the hope that obviously they, they, they hit it big one week and they, they maybe progress up to the, to the, to the main tour and can stay there. Cause obviously the margins with, with the way the game is, the way the scoring is, is so, is so small. Um, you know, anyone can be, can be anyone. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if you're, if you're playing, you know, top 75, you're probably, yeah, you're, you're probably doing okay. I mean, you're not, yeah. you're not a millionaire or anything like that, but yeah. you know, you're playing, you're playing the grand slams. You're probably getting into most 250 events. Yeah. You're not getting into 500s or masters obviously, but you know, you're playing, you're playing most of the, I don't know how many, how many, 250 weeks there are but you're probably getting into most of them okay. so about uh, half of what the singles i'm gonna have a little look because one one thing that also fascinates me about you 
is you were a good singles player, you know, and I know... It, if, that's, that's okay. But if, <laughs> yeah, but if we look at it, you, would, you, in, you in 2005, age 19, beat a 20-year-old Lucas Russell. Yeah, that's true, yeah. You know, you, you were ranked 850 in the world, you know, 19-year-old ranked 850 in the world. So, you know, if we're talking about, and, and granted back then, I think there was a bit more of a rush to be good at singles than maybe there is 10, 15 years on. Yeah. Um, a couple of little points that I just picked up when I looked at it, where I thought was interesting. In 2008, the last two on record were Granolas and Kubot which I thought was yeah. quite interesting because of their doubles rankings now as well. Yeah, I played, uh, played Kubo at Queen's. Um, I mean, he got to quarters of Wimbledon. Yeah, he was a good, oh, good oh, singles player. Not that long ago, yeah, when, yeah. when Janowicz got to the semis. Um, he, he was a very good player. Granlers, obviously, he ended up getting probably top 30 singles. Five, yeah, yeah. And doubles was like top five. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, I mean, I was never going to be a top, top singles player. I obviously, I'm sure I would have got better than what my career high was yeah. if I kept, kept playing um, or being a bit more committed to, to singles. But obviously, at the end of uh, 2006, I think my ranking was in the 60s. And I was like, okay, next year I can start the year in Australia, play Australian Open and look to play a full year on the main tour, which for me was like far more exciting than, you know, yeah. playing odd futures, maybe playing some challenger doubles stuff. I was like, well, you know, this is my opportunity now to go and try yeah. and make a, make a name for myself and in the tennis world and, and make a, make a career for myself in the game. So that makes sense then. It was more because your doubles ranking was so high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, and it's amazing you had such a high doubles ranking so early. So if we move now into Jamie Murray, the doubles player, who did you pick your first ATP points up with? Um, well, the first time I ever got a ranking. Yeah, doubles ranking. I think it was. I think it was Alan McDonald. It was, yeah. Yeah, my yeah. coach of about <laughs> ten years. Which, which again, I found, I found fascinating. You know, I mean, I know yeah. obviously, I remember seeing you and with the you and Alan playing a couple of times together. But just when I, I thought I'll have a little look. Yeah, that was it. Um, that was at Craig Walker. I mean, I, 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 am not sure how old I was at the time. Um, just turned seventeen. Because the yeah, okay, so we signed in because the the draw was empty. I mean, we obviously didn't have ranking points or anything, and then we played. Um, we played this guy Trent Aaron in the first yeah. round, who and and Emin Agaev, who was a, he was a good player, but well, Trent yeah. Aaron was like um, he was one of those guys that kind of toured around, you know, hustled like some of the top guys in those at that level yeah. to play in events. He, you know, he, I think he was like double handed both sides. He wore like two yeah, golf gloves, yeah. like to play like odd odd guy. So we played them in the first round and. I mean, he, I don't know, maybe he was even paying Agaia to play for him, I don't know, but we won. Um, and then the next round, we got a walkover against Joachim Johansson yeah. and, uh, and, and someone else because they'd obviously lost in the singles and they were going to the next tournament. So then we were in the semis, so we had ranking points. I think you, at that time, you maybe had to get to the semis to get ranking points, I think. Um, so that was, that was us on the board, yeah. I thought it was just quite a nice, <clears throat> the fact that obviously Alan's been kind of your, by your side pretty much through your career, yeah. I thought it was quite nice that, that that's, yeah. where it, that's where it started. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, a couple of things I'd love to get your insight on. One, and, and, and specifically about Louis, and if you can give us a little bit of an insight into Louis, but in terms of one, I'm sure you obviously analysed the, the opponents. Yeah. But one thing I was thinking of, doubles is obviously the closest we get to team tennis you know within tennis do you analyze the right partners for you as well you know how much would you you scrutinize that so I guess if I use the example um you might disagree with it but if I use the example of Paul Pogba yeah. you know he's an individually brilliant footballer yeah. but 
is he does he fit into the right system you know has he got the right character that's gonna you know sit for man united or whatever it is so so when jamie murray is looking at it the correct part of a him how much are you analyzing those things in order to get that nice fit and feel for the for you as a doubles team well i think you're you're certainly looking at players and seeing who you think you can match up best with from a, from a game style point of view. Um, and for, yeah, for me is like how they kind of see the game of doubles or play the game of doubles. You know, I mean, you can be totally different players, but you can still kind of believe in sort of the strategy of how best to, how best to win or your, your philosophies, even though you might be, you know, totally different players like, like me and Bruno, for example. I mean, completely different. But you know, we we knew that like with his return and my net game, you know, we could we could do a lot of damage on on return. Um, you know, with his serve, like I could. I mean, he has a good serve, but you know, I can help him out a lot with that. Yep. Um, you know, so he's not playing as many like first volleys, perhaps. Um, and then. Yeah, like our our mentality and stuff. Like, I mean, he, you know, he's a good competitor. Like, but competes in an, almost in a sort of different way that I would. Whereas, you know, I'm very, I'd say I'm quite in, quite intense on the court in terms of like competitiveness and certainly more emotional than he would be on the court. Yeah. Um, but we needed a bit of that from each other, so. <clears throat> my fire and I needed his sort of calmness yeah yeah and his ability to sort of like you know whatever happened doesn't matter like just play the next point like yeah you know if you freaking stuff the ball on top of the net or double fall or whatever he's like it's okay we, we get the next point like that whereas for me like I'd be more likely to be <laughs> freaking out about it and yeah. stuff but um you know I think that stuff's yeah, that stuff's important. I mean, you can, I mean, I wouldn't, like, you know, also, you know who you think you'll have a good report with either, you know, tennis wise, but also um, personality as well, which is hugely, hugely important. I think like it'd be difficult for me to play with someone that I didn't, I didn't necessarily enjoy hanging out with. And like, I mean, Neil, like he's obviously different. I mean, he's a different player to Bruno. But he definitely has like a lot of skills that I can use to get the best out of the team, or we can put together to to create a to create a good team. I think, but it's a different style of play to to Bruno. So you just you have to be adaptable and um, kind of yeah, I guess have a clear understanding within the team of like, okay, this is the way we want to play. And this is the way we're, yeah, this is the way we need to play to be successful and then go about, you know, committing to that each time you step on the match court. And how how would Jamie Murray, playing with Jamie Murray, be? Um, I don't know. (laughs) He'd be all over the net. I tell you what. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'd we'd be good up at net. We'd be... I mean, we'd be unpredictable. We'd be unpredictable on yeah. on return. Um, yeah, we'd be a, we'd be a good team. Yeah, wouldn't be scared to wouldn't be scared to win. We get stuck in. Sometimes get a bit down on ourselves about certain things, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, put us on semi-finals, finals. Like we're yeah, we're there to we're there to win. We're there to perform. And what about, what about Jamie Murray and Andy Murray? Obviously, you guys have had some unbelievable matches, like unbelievable matches. How does that, how does that partnership work? You know, who, who takes the lead? Who, you know, how, how do you guys, you obviously gel very well, but... It's, uh, it's different. I mean, I think it's a lot better now, like, than maybe when we were sort of younger and... and often like he was helping me get into tournaments sometimes like if I didn't have a partner or you know maybe at times when my ranking had dropped in, in those sort of two or, two or three years um 
but I mean, the cool thing for me is like playing with him. Like I know that I'm playing with someone who wants to win exactly the same, if not more than, than what I do. And like, I know that he knows how to play all the shots and he knows how to, you know, to deliver the goods when, you know, when the pressure's on and in that like really important moment, you know, he knows how to make his return and I'm going to be all over the net or, you know, he knows what he needs to do to, to get his first serve in or, or whatever. And, you know, that gives you that sort of calmness and, and confidence and you can just kind of focus on your, your game, if you like. Um, I mean, obviously, like, tactically, sometimes, you know, I have to kind of lead a bit on that because, yeah. you know, he's not playing doubles yeah. you know, week in, week out. And that's my... That's my um, bread and butter. That's my career. I mean, I wouldn't be telling him how to play his singles and stuff like that if, yeah. if I was on the court with him. But um, so sometimes I have to take the lead with that. But you know, we've had some amazing moments in our career together. Like you know, the Davis Cup matches. Obviously, we won a couple of five hundred tournaments in in Valencia and, and Tokyo. But I mean, obviously, Davis Cup was was huge for us not had great moments at the Olympics actually which has been yeah it's a shame yeah. for, for me anyway um I'm sure for him too but two of the Olympics he won the gold medal singles so <laughs> he's, uh, he's probably he probably got over that pretty quick uh, but yeah I mean like we played in Washington last year and that was really nice because you know I never knew if he was going to be able to get back out on court again or if we would get the chance to go and go and compete again so that was uh, that was a nice moment for us no, and, and, it, and it is, and it, it, not, not to, I'm not even going to get you to pick one, one experience because you've had some amazing experiences and I, I definitely would love to hear about Wimbledon. You know, I think, yeah. you know, winning Wimbledon, you know, how, how was that? Because that was, that kind of came out the blue, the mixed doubles in Wimbledon a, a little bit, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, totally. I mean, I was, uh, I was 20, 21. Wow. Yeah, I was 21 and I was probably I mean I was probably about 30 in the world like 25 30 in the world so like I was I was on the up with my doubles career but I mean I'd never played singles I think it was my second year playing at Wimbledon I played the year before Colin Fleming and we got a wild card in I think we were ranked 150 or something we got a wild card in and we, we lost in the first round but so that was my only ever experience of playing at Wimbledon but fast forward a year um, I'd won three tour events by that stage to, with Eric Butrak and I think we lost in the third we lost in the third round to uh, Deloui and Visner which was actually on like the second Friday of the tournament we were in the third round because it rained basically for a week in the middle of the tournament um, and they were so far behind and yeah I mean basically we just we, we signed in like yeah we signed in and then we were just playing and we basically I think we played like five matches the last three days of the tournament Friday Saturday Sunday um I think we played two or three times on center court and was in the royal box on Sunday evening with a trophy above my head it was like wow okay this is is a cool experience you know (laughs) get get used to that um absolutely it was not something I ever expected or anything I mean I mean, that week I was sleeping on Jamie Delgado's couch. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, on his on his sofa bed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, getting up, getting the car over to Wimbledon and playing in centre court, come back, sleep on the couch. Come back. It's amazing. No, it is. It's amazing. It, and we we actually, I spoke to Johnny Murray and Freddie Nielsen. It was the first podcast we did. Okay. And obviously they spoke about their run in 2012, which was just, which was incredible. And then we also spoke to Evan Hoyt, who's at the Academy, and Eden Silver, who who almost had a run this year. I mean, yeah. you know, that was... They, that, where, did, where did they get to? Quarters? Quarters, so. but 5-2 up in both sets and the quarters to Dodic and Chan, who, who, won, who won the event quite comfortably. And they were, it, it was, the, the common thing that seems to be with all of those stories and in, in same with you playing with Jankovic, the, the lack of expectation at first and yeah. just enjoying the ride, just yeah. enjoying the experience, enjoying the ride, you know, and just it, it, day after day. And like you say, all of a sudden, 
you're holding the trophy in the box. And I think sometimes the later people go on in the careers and the more that those things happen, the more it's expected, it's, it's maybe harder to quite have that same kind of carefree attitude. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's because, again, because it's expectation, isn't it? I mean, like for me then, I mean, I had no expectation of myself. I was just out there playing. Whereas now if I go back to play, like, I know that I can win that tournament and I know, you know, I've got a good partner. Yeah. Um, you know, me, myself, I'm a top player in the world. My partner is as well. And, yeah. you know, like there's, yeah. And then also you're aware that people coming out to watch you, like they, they expect to see you win because you're top British player playing at Wimbledon and they're there to support you. And, you know, they're, they're excited about that. And, you know, they're not going there thinking, oh, going to watch him he's going to lose whatever it's like they're coming out to support because they want to see you win so um all that adds up to it but i think um i mean i don't really personally i don't really think about it that much like the outside stuff i mean i have obviously my own expectations which which comes with its own performance pressures but that's just for me in a way it's a good thing to have that because if you're just turning up just to play just to be a part of it like can't really expect great things i mean you get one-off results here and there but yeah. i think um over the course of you know a career and stuff you have to have have expectations of yourself and absolutely yeah Okay. And I think that's the thing that amazed me so much when I, with Johnny and Freddie because I'm, I'm such good friends with them and I was there pretty much every match that year. It was the fact that it never quite caught up to them because it, it normally yeah. does. You know, yeah. you, you, you have the, then you get maybe quarters, maybe semis, and then you get caught out with the expectation. But they almost just, to ride the wave throughout the tournament was incredible. Yeah. I, think um, with the, I think with doubles as well, like, you know... Like you can get you can get on get on you can get on a roll as well, and also in that format, like you're playing so much more, it's not so like short and sharp like the regular tour. So you're, you know, you're serving a lot more, you're returning a lot more. You're not the the pressure, the score pressure is 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 not the same either. So it's kind of, I think mentally it's easier to play because you know you've got time to you know, get into the match. You've got time to potentially come back from the match if you're, if you're down. And I think, like, I'm, sh I'm sure they, they felt the same thing. I'm sure a lot of doubles players, like, once you start getting into the tournament, you know, it's like, you know, confidence builds from match to match and you're not, you know, people are more stressed about the first round than they are about, you know, semis or perhaps even, yeah. even final because... By that stage, you've played five or six matches. You might have played like 15 sets. Like you're winning most of them. You know you're playing well or you're feeling good. And it's just a case of like, okay, I go out and, and, and do it again. Whereas first round, like everyone's a bit edgy, anxious. No one wants to go out in the first round. You don't know how you're playing. Not quite sure the conditions, blah, blah, blah. Um, but once you play that first match, I feel like it's a lot easier to... You know, you're in the tournament then. Absolutely. You kind of you relax a bit. No, I feel it with the juniors I coach all the time or the players I coach. It's, it's the same. I think it's the same at all levels. It's, it is no, but nobody wants to be going out first round. Yeah. But you now, now what, what I want to talk about is being world number one. Yeah. You know, how, how was that feeling? Um, well, it was, I mean, obviously it was, I mean, it was super cool to, to, you know, look at the rankings on Monday morning in April, whenever it was, and and see your name on the, you know, with a, with a big one next to it, which was, uh, yeah. which was really cool. Um, I mean, it was weird in the way that we did it because we lost in the first round of Miami, oh. um, in a in a tie break, kind of like let the match get away from us. And I remember that night, I was like, you know, shit, I might never get the chance to to be world number one again that might be the closest I, I ever get to it um, and then got in the car the next day and was driving to Sarasota about three four hour drive with my wife to see some of her family that were up there and um, like my I wasn't really even paying attention didn't even quite know sort of like the permutations of the of the tournament but then my phone started going crazy and people were like you know you're going to be number one Melo's just lost right. um, and then 
yeah, then it was like, wow, okay, this is, this is happening, you know, and it was, yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was a weird way to kind of, to kind of get it, yeah. but, you know, it doesn't really matter because it's based on 52 weeks rather than, you know, one day's, uh, one day's result. And, and absolutely. And, and I think I, I touched on it earlier, my own personal experience of being number one in Britain, certainly not number one in the world. There was maybe in my head because I'd set that as a barrier, but you, the barrier in your head being world number one, there's no, nobody's putting the barrier there. You are, you, where do you go? exactly you know so how how was that even even maybe subconsciously do you think it was it was then harder to keep motivating or you know i always find it amazing that guys stay there for so long as well because i, think it's I don't think um I, I definitely didn't find it like difficult to find motivation because ultimately for me like i wanted to be I wanted to be at the top for as long as I can, not necessarily as number one, but certainly playing at the top of the game and competing for those titles for as long as I can. Um, and also, like in a way, you want to feel like you you earned it, and you you justify it from yeah. from uh, you know to be number one for as long as possible. Um, and so, even like. You know, I'd turn up at the tournaments and kind of feel a bit awkward, like, you know, didn't maybe quite know how to sort of act a bit. And, you know, it's not like, it's not like you've got number one tattooed on your forehead or anything, or you're oh, yeah. running around telling people that. But obviously, when people, you know, when people look at you, other players and stuff, they're thinking, oh, he's, he's number one, whatever. And it's like, okay you know, do they think Fuck, he, sh he should be number one, he deserves to be number one, is he really the best, like that sort of stuff. Like, yeah. I, I felt that, um, I don't know if, if everyone does, but um, it kind of motivated me to, to try to stay there as long as I could. I mean, I think I, I, I did like six weeks or something and then it changed, but I had opportunities the rest of that year to get back to number one, like in the, like one-off matches where if I won, I would have got back there and I lost like two or three times. And then, um, then actually, me and Br then Bruno had a chance in Shanghai if we we won a match against uh, Piers and Constant, he would have got to number one, and I would have been two. But we lost that, and then he never he never got there in the end. And I always feel bad about that because, like that day, like I didn't really play a particularly great match. Not not because I was thinking that you know he, if he wins he gets number one, but just the fact that obviously he was playing with me like he, him and Piers got me to number one and I wasn't able to kind of do the same for yeah. for him because he did he, to be honest like he deserved to be number one more than probably most players around that time because he'd been in like the top five or six for for quite a long time and had been like really consistent on the tour but just had never got to one because when he was doing it the Bryans were, <laughs> mm -hmm. were just better than everybody else. Amazing. What amazing. To, to move gears a little bit, I, I would almost, I want to go into some quick fire questions in a minute, but the one thing I do want to ask you and you, one thing that again, I think is, is amazing what you've done in your career is you've created Jamie Murray rather than just being Andy's brother. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, 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 and I would imagine for a few years, it, it probably was a little bit that you were Andy's brother, you know, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and that what were the pros and the cons of that? Um, I, d I don't know about pros necessarily. I mean, for me, it was just like, I mean, I understood it, and you know, everyone, you know, loads of people they they go to talk to you so they could talk about Andy, whether that was you know journalists or or fans or people within you know tennis family or community let's say um you know they'd always come up to talk to you and you know how's andy what's he doing blah 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 and he's like okay fine whatever yeah yeah and I, I mean i never got like it never like truly bothered me but it's obviously sometimes just like you know whatever yeah but of course that started to change as probably like 2013 onwards or maybe let's say let's say 15 onwards especially 
yeah. when then I really was like playing at the top and you know was was top ten all those years and you know winning Grand Slams or finals or whatever and yeah. you know, Davis Cup was going on and stuff like that. So and and then obviously get to get to number one like so then like I could feel the shift yeah, <laughs> as yeah. well and how people would would talk to you and things like that. But I mean even you know over the last year year and a half two years still. You know, a lot of people will come up to you. You know, how's Andy? How's his head? How's his rehab going? This this stuff, like more than to talk to you because they want to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and I think with that, the, from my point of view, and, and your mum's also jumped into that. I mean, I think Strictly Come Dancing probably yeah. would put her in in a different in a different place. You know, obviously she's ended up being quite active in in lots of different in different things and it's almost like the murray name is the brand now you know and, and i think that moves me into you know obviously you've you've set up the murray trophy you know event in, in scotland um what what does the brand murray have and, and obviously it can impact so many things what does the future what's the future for for you and and the murray brand um I don't know. I mean, I mean, certainly from my mum's point of view, I'm sure she she wants to get her um, tennis centre in Dunblane built, so yep. she's got a place to to work out of and and you know try to achieve all the things that she that she wants to achieve and th- through that, um, I think for for Andy, I mean, I'd, I'd no idea no idea really what he wants to what he wants to do um, or what he has to do really. Yeah. Um, I think for for me, like, again, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think uh, I would probably like to help my mum with the centre if it does get built because, you know, she's obviously getting, getting on and she won't obviously always have the energy stuff that she currently does to be able to, to put into all her, her projects. And stuff. So I would, definitely like to make sure that the her sort of vision for that gets gets seen through i'd like to you know i enjoy coaching in terms of or coaching but certainly helping younger kids like for me that's that's fun and i think especially in this country i mean scotland more than most like there's not many people out there who've kind of gone through the whole journey from starting out tennis and yeah you know, going through all the various stages to play right to the very top of the game and experiencing all that I've been able to experience in my career. I'd like to, you know, impart, that's the right word, on on, yeah. on a lot of the, the kids that want to sort of, um, you know, that are, are thinking about being serious about, about tennis. Great. And any any advice that you would have for players? Well, like junior players. Yeah, junior up and yeah, up and coming junior players. Um, well, I think that. Well, I think the journey is very long. Yeah. Longer now than than ever because players are playing longer. The level is is as high as it's ever been, and obviously the depth is 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 uh, is so is so so strong right through the rankings. Um, I think that I think as a junior player, I think it's really important that you are constant. Well, I guess take a long-term view of things and constantly kind of try to develop your games to the point where you know when you when you do finish in the juniors and you you make that step up to professional tennis, you're aware that you're going to be competing against um, <clears throat> against adults against you know, grown men who've been out there potentially like 15 years or so and um, you need to have a game that's going to stand up to that. Um, and I think that's I think that's really important. Like, I think people kind of get carried away in the juniors with, you know, results and rankings and winning, losing yeah. matches and stuff. But I think at the end of the day, once you turn 19 or finish your junior year, you start from zero, right? So... You know, and there's no prizes for finishing right. number one junior. Like it doesn't guarantee you anything. No. So I think it's 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 more important that you're 
consistently developing your game so that it stands up to the test of uh, of senior tennis, I think. Very good, Jamie. And a little quick fire round, a little Thank bit you. lighter to finish. Nothing too difficult. Uh, just give me one answer. Okay. Um, singles or doubles? Uh, doubles. Serve or return? Uh, serve. US or Australian Open? US Open. An interesting one for you. A, a lob or a volley? Uh, nah, volley. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Uh, I think, I mean, Davis Cup for the history, but ATP Cup was a lot of fun. World number one or Grand Slam champion? Um, what, one Grand Slam or? Well, not just... World number one. What's world, uh, world, number number one, one. Yeah, world, world number one? World number one. A full third set or a tiebreak third set? A tiebreak third set. What and one rule that you would change in the game of tennis if you could? Tough question. I'd maybe make the singles players more accountable for their doubles results. Very good. Jamie, thank you so much for your time, mate. It's been no, no, it's all right. No worries. It's been amazing, and and, uh, and just to get for people to to be able to listen to that, and as you said so so well there, who who in the world, but certainly who in the in the British game, not many have gone from all the way there, all the way through to the the very very top of the game, and to to hear you speak so well about so many different areas will, will be massive education, I'm sure, for lots of people listening. So, so thank you very much. No, that's all right. Pleasure. Wow. How good was that? Thanks so much, Jamie, for that. I'm sure you all enjoyed listening. He sat there. He, he spoke openly, honestly, in a very relaxed manner. An amazing insight into one of our real champions from Great Britain and and it was a pleasure to be a part of. I'd also like to go on record to say a big thank you to Jamie and to Andy. About a year ago my man was diagnosed with dementia and both boys without hesitation sent over video messages so I could put together an invitation to the French Open this year. She loved it. French Open's not going to happen this year probably, but next year we'll be there and it shows what amazing young men they both are. Yes, they've taken on the tennis world, but importantly, they've kept the strong values in place that their parents have, have given to them. And I'd like to say a big thank you and dedicate this episode to my mum, who I know loves both you boys. So, so thank you. Keep subscribing to the channel. We're getting some fantastic feedback. Please keep spreading the word and we'll try and keep bringing the best possible guests to the show. This is Dan Keenan, my co-host John McGann. Control the Corona Bulls. Thank you.